This is Chris. Welcome to episode 217 of X-Lapsed. It's a, it's a biggie. It's the biggie, I think. Uh, this is Planet Size. We are finally going to get uh, to talk about what happened in this issue, uh, even though I think many, many, many of us have been uh, spoiled on exactly what this was to begin with. And I mean, in fairness, uh, Marvel hasn't been all that shy about spoiling their own stories of late, so... Can't really place the blame on on you know just the fans for this one. This is a uh, this goes much deeper than that. But uh, let's get into it here, so we can finally talk about it. Planet Size X Men number one had an August 2021 cover date. The story is called Fireworks, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Pepe Larraz, colors Marty Gracia, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price five dollars. This one went on sale June 16 of 2021. Now, we open with, like, five pages of Magneto, Hope, Vulcan, Iceman, and likely some others terraforming Mars. I mean, most of us knew that this was exactly what was going to happen, but here it is, we're seeing it. And I take it that we're supposed to ignore the fact that way back when we started this, we did see someone planting a Krakoan seed on Mars? And uh, in the time before X-10s, we did have Emma Frost already on Mars, overseeing the Red Garden. Maybe? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? We'll just uh, we'll play it as we, uh, as we get it here. So, we have Magneto. He's collecting a bunch of iron. Hope and Vulcan, they crack into Mars- Mars's core, which allows the iron to be, like, implanted in there, I think. Iceman does some ice thing that he doesn't explain. Uh, gonna assume that it helped in some way. From here, we go into our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Characters include Magneto, Iceman, Elixir, Hope Summers, Iska the Unbeaten, Captain America, Quentin Quire, that weirdo Jamie Braddock, Storm, Jean Grey, Exodus, despite the fact that he just kind of stands there, and Professor X. From here, we go to a mostly blank quote page. It's a quote from Emma Frost, who, uh, declares that this will be a where-were-you-when sort of moment. And as we know from the, you know, the, the house ads that Marvel's been running, they've been comparing this one to Giant Size, number one, from uh, 1975, which uh, I'm not always a fan of when they do that, because, uh, I, I mean, the way I look at moments, uh, moments are usually things that aren't planned. Right? Moments are things that happen. The moments are things that we can look back on and be like, wow, that happened. When you set yourself up to be some earth-shattering thing, all you're going to do is underwhelm. Right? You're going to oversell and you're going to underwhelm. And you're going to make it 
So our expectations are like way up in the stratosphere, and then anything that comes short is going to be a disappointment. So I think that saying this, you know, this is a where were you when sort of moment, might be overselling it just a tad. I mean, we are dealing with a universe that can't go 20 minutes between alien invasions as it is. Plus, I mean, the very the very fact that this is taking place in a fantastical universe to begin with makes something like this far less of a feat. I mean, it just makes you wonder why it hasn't happened already. I mean, as mentioned, Earth is invaded basically every other day. Shouldn't other planets be colonized and made livable by now? It seems like a, uh, just common sense. If you can do it, why wouldn't you do it? Especially when the Earth is at risk constantly. Back to comics, and, uh, well, we see them terraforming Mars here, but, uh, like the song says, well, how did we get here? Let's go back to four days ago. Magneto is on Araco chatting up Iska the Unbeaten. Now, it turns out the Iraqis are making quite the nuisance of themselves on Earth, and so he's got a scenario he'd like to present and perhaps sell to her. Now, it would have been nice had we seen more Iraqi shenanigans in the interim between X of Tens and the Gala, but, I mean, whatever. Uh, in fairness to Jerry Duggan, he did include a scene of this in a recent issue of Cable, where Cable and Cyclops were facing off against... Uh, Two Iraqis in a uh, pub in, in London, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Now, from here, we jump ahead one day. We're at Krakoa. It's three days ago. Now, the Hellfire crew, they're informing Magneto that there's been a kink in production. You see, humans are being dicks. And uh, there was that whole thing with the Savage Land facility getting blowed up in that horrendous first issue of X-Corp. Also... The humans are demanding more concentrated doses of the mutant miracle magic meds. Does this make sense? I mean, we know what the meds are good for, right? They can cure brain diseases, they can add five years onto life, uh, other stuff, right? So, can a higher dose, like, cure more dementia? <laughs> it's like, one dose should do it. That's kind of the way it's been presented to us. Uh, does a higher dose add a better five years to a human's life? I mean, it's it's you're getting five years. D does it matter how how concentrated the dose is? I I just don't think it works this way. I don't understand what they're going for here. Now, whatever the case, Magneto has a plan, and he requests use of Frost's Mercury craft for a little bit. Emma smirks and wonders what it is that Eric is thinking, and wonders if uh, he's hiding something from the Quiet Council. Next, we're at the Xavier School two days ago. It's been a little while since we've seen this place. Actually, it's been a long while since we've seen this place. I think the last time we saw the school was uh, in that giant-sized Nightcrawler issue that barely featured Nightcrawler, where uh, the school was overrun by those uh, little beetle aliens and, uh, and just overgrown with Krakoan foliage. Now, that's where we are, because Captain America has asked Cyclops for a face-to-face -face chat. And he decided that the old school would be the best place for it. Now, Cap asks about the Iraqis, uh, noting that there are now several million new, unknown, and potentially unstable and dangerous mutants on the planet. He wants to know if this is a permanent arrangement. Cyclops isn't entirely sure and suggests that Cap maybe ask him again in a couple of days. He then asks if Cap will be attending the gala. Well, he wasn't going to, but he sure as hell is now. Next, the Quiet Council, and it's yesterday. 
Now, Magneto is selling his idea to the Council. It's fairly vague, but since we already know where this is headed, we can fill in the blanks ourselves. Now, the gist is something along the lines of, uh, hey, let's show how powerful we are, while also putting some distance between the Iraqis and Earth. And so, this very morning, Magneto and the Omegas are in space. Now, they don't give us a roll call here, but uh, well, let's do it anyway. We got Magneto, Iceman, Hope, Proteus, Jean Grey, Quentin Quire, Storm, Elixir, Exodus, and Vulcan. I'm not sure why they're taking the Mercury to Mars. I mean, they've been to Mars before via gateways. I mean, Jerry Duggan wrote that in Marauders. Oh well. Okay, it's here that Magneto delivers his plan. Exodus wonders aloud why they hadn't looped Legion in on this deal. Legion is wildly powerful. Magneto claims that he doesn't trust Legion just yet, but that's not exactly the way that scene played out, is it? Uh, I seem to remember Legion telling Magneto that he didn't trust him over in Way of X number two. Quentin suggests maybe they draft uh, Franklin Richards, right? Um, uh, Magneto certainly isn't keen on involving a pretender, claiming that Frank ain't no family of theirs. Now, Magneto actually already has a reality warper in mind for the gig, and to the surprise of no one, we head to Otherworld. Now, he winds up drafting uh, that weirdo Jamie Braddock, but only does so after the Kingdom of Mercator turns him down. Now, it's worth noting here there is a cute cape-based exchange here. Uh, Jamie admires Magneto's cape, and Eric informs him in no uncertain terms that he ain't getting it. We jump to hours before the gala, where Magneto's on Araco, where he meets with the Great Ring. Now, we meet some members of the Ring, including Lactuka the Knower, Sobanar of the Depths, and Xylo, first defender of this broken land. Now, Iska tells Magneto that these three can help him with his Martian task. And so, we arrive at now, and we're back on Mars. Now, Sobanar's power has to do with bleeding water or something? And with the aid of Hope's power amplification power, this water bleed will turn into a vast sea, a vast ocean in Arabia Terra, which is an actual large upland region on Mars that measures 2,800 miles or 4,500 kilometers. So uh, now it's full of water. We got water. Of note, Arabia Terra is an oft-mentioned area of Mars when it comes to discussing things like water, hidden Martian rivers and stuff like that. Uh, from here, Storm molds Mars's climate, I think. Uh, Xylo, who looks like a giant caterpillar, is then tasked with imbuing the Martian soil with nutrients and oxygen and whatnot. Elixir is here to help, so uh, I guess he can no longer only heal people, but entire planets as well. Eh, fair enough, I guess. Now, the heroes realize that their helmets are beginning to fog up, which tells them that we've got an atmosphere. Magneto then steps through a gateway, arriving back on Krakoa, so I knew there was a gate. Uh, we're over where Apocalypse's Eternal Gate is about to be relocated. If you remember, the Eternal Gate was important during the lead-up to X of Tens, and was then kind of forgotten about, much like most of X of Tens. Whatever the case, it's here where Lactuka will be tasked with bringing the Eternal Gate and the entire island of Araco to Mars. Exodus and Jean are here to help as well, and, uh, well, in the course of a panel, it looks like it's working. We jump back to Mars, where Hope and Quentin are lounging on a brand new Martian beach. They're at Nil Fosse. Fosse? I don't know. It's a plains region which contains the largest known carbonate-rich deposit on Mars, which 
I guess it's kind of a moot point now, seeing as though it's back to being a living planet. Now, Quentin is annoyed that they're going out of their way to help the Iraqis. Hope tells him that, if not for the Iraqis, the Earth would have been destroyed during X of Tens. Is that true, though? I, I thought if the Iraqis would have won that, the uh, Earth would have... I, I don't know. We'll just... We'll let it go. We'll let it go. Now, this chat is interrupted by a big bang. And suddenly, Araco r- arrives on its new home planet. Now, the caption reads that this is the second time in as many weeks that Araco has been uprooted. Are we really supposed to believe that Exitens ended less than two weeks ago? I, I mean, that doesn't... Um, hmm. So Betsy was only shattered for like a few days? If that's the case, why is Britain so ticked at her? The way they make it sound, she was gone for like weeks or months. I, hmm. I mean, the literal end of the world happened in King of Black. That, that was just in between here? Uh, sword, sword. The the uh, the satellite was formed, was staffed, went on a ton of missions, even replaced Fabian Cortez. All of that within like ten days. I, I don't know. Let's not think about it all that hard. Anyway, the dust settles, and the Iraqis begin to get acquainted with their new home. Now, from Hela's Basin, which is one of the solar system's largest impact basin. Uh, that was formed between 3.8 and 4.1 billion years ago when a large asteroid slammed into the surface of Mars. It's uh, 2,300 kilometers wide and 7 kilometers deep. It's now, naturally, full of water. Now, from it springs a new diplomatic post. It's the Lake Hellas Diplomatic Ring. So I guess this is where intergalactic diplomats will hash out their differences. So, uh, hey, you know, maybe this will result in maybe there being a few months between alien invasions of Earth. Yeah, probably not. Um, in another area of Mars, Xylo erects a pair of large statues. One is of Apocalypse, the other of Genesis. And of course, they're off doing the Amenthi thing right now. Then, that weirdo Jamie Braddock gives birth to a sword station too. Like, literally. It grows in his womb and explodes out his belly. Um, I'm not sure who will be manning Station 2, but Magneto assures us that uh, it will be here to defend Araco. Jamie then creates Port Prometheus, which is a spaceport where people can land on Mars, I guess. Elsewhere, Storm congratulates Magneto on a job well done while he's planting a Krakoan seed. Storm contacts Xavier to let them know, uh, you know, they're ready, and uh, Xavier's planting the adjoining seed on Krakoa. Storm and Magneto then note that it's begun to rain, on Mars, and Storm denies having anything to do with it. This is just the planet being a planet, crying uh, tears of happiness, is uh, what Storm says here. Uh, Xavier then walks the notables of Krakoa through the portal and introduces them to Planet Araco. So uh, we got us a planet. Info page. Now, Sword Station 2 data bursts, the announcement of Araco being the first mutant world. Uh, now, would-be visitors are cautioned not to attempt landing anywhere except Port Prometheus. Oh, and also, Araco is now the capital of the solar system? Okay, then. Info page. Uh, a map of planet Araco, and there are 18 points of interest, so we might as well read through them here. I'm sure they will be uh, fleshed out more as we uh, continue. One is Araco Prime, which I'm guessing is the original island. Two, the Circle Perilous. Uh, maybe some sort of otherworldly thing like the Siege Perilous? Maybe? I don't know. Three, the Great Ring. Self-explanatory. We know what that is. Four, the Eternal Gate. Again, we know what that is. Five, Olympus Mons. This is a Martian volcano, or a real thing. 
Six, the Temple Gate, which is a gate to somewhere. Seven, the Outcast Gate, which is a gate to somewhere. Eight, the Tharsis Montes, a trio of volcanoes that actually exist. Nine, Valley of the Fallen, don't know. Ten, the Spire Vile, unknown, but uh, we do know another vile. Don't know if it has anything to do with the locuses. Uh, Eleven, the Underplace, don't know. Twelve, the Argir Planitia. Argir Planitia. I don't know. It's another impact basin like Hellas. Uh, speaking of which, number thirteen is Lake Hellas, and we already discussed that. Fourteen, the Sol Diplomatic Zone. We just met that place. Uh, Fifteen, Spaceport Prometheus. Again, we just met that place as well. Sixteen, the House of Prominence, which I have not the foggiest. Seventeen, Hellfire Farms, likely a new version of the Red Garden, maybe a uh, more heavily manned one, and one that will uh, maybe bloom more uh, than the original, I don't know. Eighteen is the Autumn Palace. Now, the Autumn Quarter of the Quiet Council features Magneto, Professor X, and Apocalypse's vacated seat. So maybe one of the Iraqis, perhaps Iska the Unbeaten, will get that open spot, and maybe this will be a place for the three of them to meet. Can't really say, but, I mean, the use of the word autumn, I mean, that uh, it stands to reason it could have some sort of a link to the uh, autumn, autumn quarter of the council. Next up, stop me if you heard this one, info page. Uh, this is a letter from Dolores Ramirez at the X desk, and she's basically reporting, like, a recitation of events from the gala. And uh, she seems far less sinister here than she does in Wolverine. Though, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that this is Duggan writing her, and so she's very consistent with her portrayal in Duggan's own Marauder series, so feels very much in line with that. Wolverine, who in the hell knows what's going on over there? She does wonder, though, if the United States, being, you know, relatively diplomatically chummy with Krakoa, will automatically have to accept their just taking of Mars. You know, they, they've just taken it and colonized it. It's theirs, so is this something that... World governments need to just go with the flow on? I guess we'll find out. Finally, info page. Now, this is from Tom DeRocco at NASA. And there are a lot of words on this page, like a lot. And it's all pseudoscience and technobabble. I would almost, I mean, it, it, it seems like something that Hickman wrote, despite the fact that I don't think he did. But uh, that's where we leave it. That is the end. That is the big Earth and Mars shattering issue. Planet Size X-Men. Uh, next, we will be talking about New Mutants back at the gala proper. But, uh, well, let's talk about this one. Let's uh, let's get to the bottom of this one here. I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say because uh, this was a very uh, utilitarian issue. It was all about uh, the terraformation of Mars. And despite the fact that, you know, not nothing else happened, I feel like, uh, I feel like Duggan... You know, he, he went all in here. Um, I don't understand the science behind it. <laughs> I don't know that there is any actual science behind it, but uh, he sold me. He sold me here. I think uh, he did enough homework on uh, pseudoscience, I suppose, to, uh, to, to put, this, uh, put this forward and uh, make it seem like something that these characters could do. That said, the mutants are far too powerful now, right? Um... Now, if we were to do this exact thing in a different era of X-Books, I think we might be, or I can't speak for everybody, I think I would be rooting for them more. Where now it just looks like hubris. And I think that's the intention. I think we're not supposed to be rooting for the X-Men right now. I think we're just watching them 
we're watching them build themselves up so they can they can have a fall, right? They're getting to the point where they're just so top heavy in power that there will be an eventual fall and we're working our way to it. So, but they are very powerful. They are very uh, braggadocious. They're really just putting it in everybody's face right now. It feels like an overcorrection in some ways, but it also feels very human. You know, it feels like something, you know, if you were downtrodden by, by people for your entire existence, your entire life, and suddenly you are powerful, well, you want your oppressors to know it. If you were bullied all throughout high school and when it comes time for the reunion, you come back and you're uh, completely jacked and you're a millionaire. I mean, you want the people who made your life hell to know it, right? It's That's what it feels like for me for the X-Men. But at the same time, and I mean, I've mentioned this a few times during the synopsis, this is the Marvel Universe, right? So this act here in Terraforming Mars isn't all that impressive, Right? I mean, this is something that probably should have been done before. <laughs> it could have been done before. It could have been done at any time in the past however many years that the Marvel Universe has been a thing. We've got gods walking the planet. You know, we've got... We have Omega-level mutants constantly. We we have alien invasions every five minutes. So, um, I don't know. It just feels like this is something that uh, that should have been done by now. You know? Um, and also... Let's look at that weirdo Jamie Braddock, right? Let's look at his power set here. Why did we need the Omega-level mutants when Jamie probably could have done this on his own? I mean, if he wanted to, he could probably terraform every terraformable planet in every single solar system if he wanted to, on a whim, without even thinking much about it. So why didn't he? Um, Was this a play on... Some of the stuff we're seeing, like in New Mutants, where everything is about synergist power use. Like, we're trying to show these Omega-level mutants working together. Their power is in tandem to show what they can do if they work together. Eh, sure, there's there's merit to that. But at the same time, Jamie could have snapped his fingers and, and literally birthed a planet if he wanted to. So it seems, again... It's impressive in some ways, but it's also not so impressive in others. Um, Now, something that's been rattling around in my head since we read the uh, Sinister Secrets in X-Men 21, where uh, Sinister, uh, he talked about how there aren't just two powers here, right? And uh, I posited that the powers that are the obvious ones are Arako and uh, Krakoa. Uh, and we talked about what the other ones could be, and uh, one of them was Orcus. And I'm thinking here, because we've got Earth, right? We have Earth. On Mars, you know, the, on the third planet, we have Earth. Fourth planet, we have Araco. Araco just took over, just took over this fourth planet. If we go back to Hoxpox, Orcus has, uh, has a settlement on Venus, the second planet. So... We've got Orcus here, we've got right next to them Earth, and then right next to them Morocco. So, Earth is in the middle of a potentially volatile uh, situation here. If we have Orcus on Venus go to, go to war with Morocco on Mars, I mean, that could, be a, that could be a pretty big deal, right? That could be something that could... Sh- I mean, I'm looking at solicits now, and uh, just about every single issue is promising to shake Krakoa to its core. <laughs> and it's, 
you know, if if every book is doing it, then really, I mean, come on, none of the books are doing it then. But this here, this potential um, war, and I mean, this is all just coming out of the back of my head here. These are just shower thoughts, basically, but... Orcus on Venus, Araco on Mars, if they go to war. I mean, Araco, we know they're a warlike people. Uh, we could argue that they were only warlike because of Annihilation, but, I mean, they look like they could be bored pretty easy, as is evidenced by what they did while they were on Earth. All they did was cause mischief. You know, they wrecked a pub, they wrecked a brewery, they, they're just screwing around because they're bored. So... We might have a uh, a bit of a skirmish on our hands here, and I think that is something that could literally, you know, and actually shake Krakoa to its uh, to its core, you know, without without as much Marvel solicitory uh, hyperbole, I suppose. So what else is there to say? Um, I mean, the art was fantastic. That goes without saying. Um, much of the writing was very good, as I mentioned. Duggan made me buy in. You know, this is a lot of silly pseudoscience, but in a way that feels less up its own ass than when Hickman does it. You know, I think with Hickman, I, and this is probably projection, but I, I get like this feeling like he's trying to talk down to us. And again, projection, 100% projection. I don't know the man, so I can't speak to it. With Duggan, I feel like it's a more sort of a folksy here, come along with me, I'm going to explain what we're doing sort of a situation where we have... These disparate mutants doing disparate things to accomplish a single goal. It made enough sense for me to fake my way through, and I like that. Um, I think, like, the main takeaway here, though, um, outside of the story, is the fact that they've been promoting this book as the successor to Giant Size Number 1. You know, and maybe it's unfair of us to hold it to any sort of expectation, because, again, moments are really uh, informed by hindsight. And this is all in my opinion and experience, of course, so mileage can and certainly might vary. But the way I look at it, we are a people, um, we are a fandom and a people, you know, inside and outside of comics, with something that I call history envy. We all want to be there for something historical. The thing of it is, in nonfiction and also in fiction, you can't always guarantee that something you're going to something you're going to see or do is going to be historical. It's going to be something that's going to go down in history. And when you try to evoke that sort of feeling in fiction, it's, uh, as I said at the top of the show, you're opening yourself up to disappointment. Because in saying that something is going to be as, as grand as something that we've already read or already experienced, you're immediately setting up a, uh, a comparison So we can go back and read Giant Size Number 1 Giant Size Number 1 is not a great issue I don't know how many folks have uh, read it recently I, I read it not too long ago for a, uh, for a blog project But uh, it's not great <laughs> It really isn't It's only in the years that follow it That we can look back on Giant Size and be like Wow, that was when this happened, right? That was when the new team took over. That is when everything changed. But that book in a vacuum? Not great. Not great at all. Now this issue, we don't yet have hindsight. So we can't really say that this is the moment where everything changed. And and I mean, comics are a different animal right now. We know that Hickman's here for a set amount of time. You know, uh, when we went into Giant Size, I mean, I wasn't there for it. I wasn't even on the planet for it. But... 
you go into giant size, you go into X-Men 94, you go through, you know, the hundreds, the two hundreds, Claremont's there. Now, he wasn't there for giant size, but he came shortly thereafter. He's there, he is building this world, he is setting up everything, everything is coming off this new team, right? So we've got all the hindsight in the world, and everything just, everything just flows. Here we know it could be a year from now, it could be six months from now, Hickman's gonna leave, right? We know that there's a very good possibility that the X-Men are going to be added to the uh, cinematic universe. I mean, whether we want them to or not. I personally do not, <laughs> but uh, I don't usually get what I want. But uh, again, that's another mileage may vary sort of thing. I'm not a movie guy. I'm not an MCU guy. I would like comics to be comics and movies to be movies. But enough of that. I'll, uh, I won't go much deeper. That said, there's a very good possibility that the X-Men will be joining the cinematic universe. I don't know that the Cohen comics are going to be the most advantageous to have on the shelves when those movies start coming out. It's likely that we will go back to basics, so to speak. We will be back at the school. We will have a uh, more iconic team, uh, less background characters. I think that's kind of what's going to happen. And again, I mean... Who knows what mutants they'll choose to be on the X-Men in the MCU. I mean, it could be the strangest Alvaro team ever concocted, for all we know. But I do feel like that will inform the direction of the books, for better, for worse, or for extremely worse. I mean, who knows? So that said, this whole thing in comparing planet size to giant size feels immediately snake-bit. Because eventually this is going to stop This is going to go away This is going to be walked back I could be wrong Again, I don't know I don't have any sort of insider knowledge These are simply hot takes But I feel like comparing it to something that is legitimately iconic And legitimately a, a pivot point In not only X-Men comics but comics in general Because the language of superhero team books changed Following Giant Size you know, a few months later, Claremont comes in and it becomes the mutant soap opera. Across the street at DC, not too long after that, or half a decade after that, Marv Wolfman and George Perez launched the new Teen Titans. Superhero soap opera. You know, uh, Batman and the Outsiders, more superhero soap opera. The JLI, superhero comedy soap opera. I mean, it changed the language of, of what comics were for a... Uh, for a maturing audience who wanted a little bit more characterization. I don't see Planet Size being a pivot point like that. And it's not the fault of the book, it's the fault of the promotion of the book. It's the fault of uh, Marvel trying to tell us that this is something that is can't miss and will change everything. Because it'll change everything for a minute, but something tells me ten years from now, if they're still publishing comics... We'll be on message boards and social medias and, uh, I don't know, holographic, uh, you know, spatial visits like, uh, like the Jetsons or something. And uh, we'll be like, hey, you remember that time where the X-Men terraformed Mars? Yeah, whatever happened to that? Oh, I stopped reading after that. I don't know. And I apologize for droning on. I'm surely just repeating myself at this point. But um, I'm taking the scenic route to say it's not a good comparison. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I took... 20 minutes to say it, but uh, that's basically my final thought on this issue. I look forward to hearing all your thoughts on this issue, too, because, uh, hey, we can finally talk about it. It's an, it's no longer an open secret. Now it's just in the ether, 
and we can discuss exactly what this means and exactly what it was. So uh, I do look forward to hearing from all of you on that. And uh, speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got three letters, including a brand new letter writer, and I'm very, very excited to share their thoughts. So let's start with Damien. And he is talking about New Mutants number 17. He says, let's start with a positive. I will take an Alice in Wonderland riff over a Dungeons & Dragons one any day of the week. It makes Otherworld more fun and considerably more consistent with its Marvel UK origins. It also allows Rod Reese to let loose with his art. Maybe it's just because of the Alice connection, but at times I'm seeing an element of Kyle Baker coming through. Did you ever see Baker's adaptation of Alice through the looking glass? It's back when first we're doing Classics Illustrated. Now I'm imagining how much better Kyle Baker's Excalibur would be. Amazing. And no, I, 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 have, no, um, I have no experience with his, uh, with his adaptation of uh, Through the Looking Glass. When I think of Baker, I think of... Oh, what was it? What was it? Uh, why I Hate Saturn. That's what I think of when I think of Kyle Baker. That and uh, Plastic Man from around uh, the mid-2000s. And all I remember of Kyle Baker, I, I like his art a lot, but his lettering really, <laughs> I don't know what it is about his lettering, but it bugs me. It feels like it's a little too pleased with itself. Um, and again, I'm projecting. I don't know him at all, but uh, I agree. Um, I think his Excalibur would be a lot of fun if we were to get Kyle Baker in here to do some uh, some Otherworld stuff. At least, I mean, I'm not going to care about Otherworld, but at least it'll be fun to look at. Not that Marcus Toe is, uh, is any, any slouch in that regard. Uh, Damien continues. On the negative, I'm convinced that the pages of this issue were published out of order. Yup. <laughs> there were a lot of times I was confused. I also really hate the redesigns of Roma and Merlin. I know Ayala and Reese probably have to use the designs from X of Tens, but no one has ever bettered the Alan Davis designs. Hell, go back to the original Herb Trimpy design that made Roma look like a missing member of the Forever People. Anything but this. Now, the original Roma, or the earlier Roma that had, like, the ridiculous Widow's Peak, like the Dave Cockrum-esque Widow's Peak, it was a very, very ugly, ugly design in my opinion. At least I knew who it was, right? Um, a design doesn't have to be appealing for it to be identifiable. And here, Roma's just just a woman with long black hair. You know, it's it, there's nothing identifiable that says it's her, or it could be Celine, it could be uh, Sebastian Shaw's girlfriend from the first Hellfire Gala. I mean, who knows? Uh, but I, your point is well taken here. I think, I think we need to have uh, we need to have character bibles. Is something that I've been advocating for a very long time. We need to have a standardized look for all the characters, major, minor, incidental. I think everybody needs to have a set look. So. When, when somebody starts drawing at Marvel, they get this Bible. <laughs> it's like, here's what this character looks like. Please make it look like this. Yeah, I'm always reminded, and I'm sure I've complained about this before, but uh, uh, the Carol Danvers Captain Marvel. Um, like, in one issue, she would have very, very short hair. The next issue, she'd have really, really long hair. <laughs> the next issue, she'd have really, really short hair. It's Can we just decide on what these characters look like? I mean... If the creators and editors can't be invested or bothered to do so, you're telling me that I shouldn't either. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm taking the scenic route again. That's kind of what I do. But uh, I do think we need standardized looks for these characters. Damien continues. 
The continuing Scout versus Everyone story is, con is continuing to develop. I don't think I've ever seen such a great evocation of depression in comics as we're seeing here. She's quickly becoming my favorite character in the book, reaching a particular high point in the next issue. And Scout is uh, pretty great in this book. Scout is probably, probably the highlight of this book. There's a lot going on in this book, right? Um, we got Shadow King stuff. We have Rain uh, worrying about Tear. We have this otherworld crap. And we've got Scout. And Scout is making us ask a lot of those inconvenient questions, which that's what we love on the show. We love being challenged. We love having to think critically. We love the fact, or I mean, I love the fact that uh, when a hole is, when, when there is a plot hole or a logic hole or a logic gap in, uh, in our storytelling, when a character brings that up and shines a light on it, it's like, huh, okay, well, that wasn't so much a uh, glossing over of something, but it's a, uh, it's something we were supposed to notice. It's like a vindication, right? It's, well, can clones be resurrected? Well, don't worry about it, is what we're told. Don't worry about it. But uh, Scout's worrying about it, because uh, she's got every right to worry about it. It's really, really well done. Damien continues, I remain intrigued by the Shadow King. This issue, Farouk, comes across as more reasonable and less sinister. Do you think it's possible that the true Shadow King persona is part of Tran, so with karma in Otherworld, everyone chills out? Very good possibility. I think... I'm trying to remember... I haven't read the Lost Souls uh, New Mutants uh, miniseries. I think uh, Matthew Rosenberg wrote that probably 2017, 2018-ish. And I think that had something to do with Tran having some sort of Shadow King thing going on. So that is definitely a possibility. I do like... That's another thing that I'm really digging about. This is the ambiguity in Amal Farouk. We look at him, and he looks sinister. He looks like the Shadow King that we've always been scared of. But he's, uh, he's not exactly that, right? He's being depicted here as... Uh, being kind of a like a sounding board and a mentor for the for the irregulars, you know, Rainboy and an LA and um, No Girl, uh, Cosmar, he's acting as a mentor, which is scary in its own right. But at the same time, it, it makes you wonder. It's like maybe they're uh, maybe they're just gonna zig instead of zag here, and he's gonna maybe be a force for good at least in the interim for a little while. Damien continues. I feel like I have nothing to add to your discussion of conventional beauty and class on Krakoa. I've seen a lot of people comment that the X-Men election has created a team that is almost entirely American, but it's also true that they're all conventionally attractive. The representatives chosen by the Krakoans are all able to pass as human. I'm glad that Vida Ayala is willing to challenge passing privilege in their writing. There genuinely is a benefit of be to being a gay person who can pass as straight, Anyone who's listened to episode 200 knows that I'm unable to disguise my gayness because I have the campest voice in Christendom. And life is more difficult if you can't. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. It's, uh, I was looking at it as a uh, micro rather than a macro, I think. It's been a long time since, uh, since we talked about this issue, but the idea... And I mean, we're in the midst of the Hellfire Gala right now where everything is based on glamour. And beauty, and just you know the these these ornate costumes and, and outfits. 
it's very much a superficial sort of a situation here. And I mean, the way the uh, the mutants are just like going about their business in front of humans and other superheroes in these ridiculous costumes, it, it really, it's like a, a weird, um, what was it? The, uh, the, the king has no clothes sort of thing, right? It's like they don't even realize what they look like. They don't realize that they look like I mean, in my opinion, they, they look like clowns. They look like idiots. But they're just so far, they're just so aloof to that. They're, they're starting to, they're buying into their superiority, and it doesn't matter what they're wearing. I mean, they could be, they could be wearing, you know, raw steaks, and it wouldn't matter. They could be wearing nothing at all. And they would still think that they're superior to everyone else here. So we have that in the air right now. In New Mutants, we're questioning that. We're questioning why, you know, the X-Men, they're all able to pass. They're all able to pass. They can live in a brownstone in Brooklyn. They can live in an apartment in San Francisco. They can live in a, in a duplex in Chicago. They can, they can live anywhere they want. They can have jobs. They can have hobbies. They can have friends. Someone like Cosmar doesn't have that luxury. Someone like Anole doesn't have that luxury. It's uh, I like that they're pointing that out here. That's on the macro, right? Uh, Scott Summers can go and uh, have a passport and hop on a plane and, and go anywhere he wants. A uh, Victor Borkowitz or whatever <laughs> Enole's name is, he doesn't have that luxury. So it's uh, I hope that's something that uh, Vita Ayala plays more with because I think that's one of those inconvenient questions about Krakoan society that... I don't know that's been that's had a light shown on it quite as much as it should, because this really um, informs why these irregulars are are coming together and why they might find a mentor in the Shadow King, who himself is. I mean, he could probably pass, I guess, in a you know giant um, you know dude with a fez sort of way, but uh, but I mean, he is here to he's here to advocate for them in a way. Damien continues, It was interesting to hear you're drawing a parallel between the Hellfire Gala and the idea of conventional beauty on Krakoa. It's definitely true that a lot of marketing around the story is about beautiful people and in fantastical clothes, which is an interesting direction to go. As I recall, the original appearance of Jumbo Carnation talked about how he designed for people with transformed bodies. It almost feels like it would make more sense for him to be designing outfits for Cosmar than for Emma Frost. Another great point, and I think I, I think I jumped ahead and I talked a bit, a little bit about this just a second ago, but I do believe you're right that uh, when Jumbo Carnation was introduced during uh, the Morrison era, I think I, I mean it's been a long time since I read that, but I think he I think he was introduced by dying, and I don't know that we ever saw him alive. I could be mistaken, but I think his like death was reported, and that's where we found out that he was he was there to outfit people with transformed bodies. So. It would be interesting to see him putting together outfits for, for the Cosmars of the world here. I I haven't read New Mutants yet, so for all I know, Cosmar has a fantastical outfit, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, Damien continues, I had decided to pick up the entire Hellfire Gala, and ultimately I am quite enjoying it. It's a Fall of the Mutants type event rather than an Inferno in the fact that they all happen at the same time rather than being a continuous story. It's pretty good, but I would say the quality is variable. I found the Hellions and New Mutants issues to be much better than Excalibur and X-Force, but that's hardly a surprise. 
The X-Men issues were at the mystique end rather than the brew end of the range. I think you'll enjoy them, as there's plenty to get your teeth into. Well, so far, I mean, we are, what, five or six parts into it. I think I'd say I'm coming away from it mostly positive, uh, mostly on the positive side. I think a lot of... A lot of my misgivings with it are predicated in the hype that's surrounding it, and that's not fair. You know, that's not fair for me to hold that sort of a bias against these books because uh, because they were overhyped. That's not the fault of any singular creator or editor. You know, it's uh, just a case where we were told that this is uh, this is one thing, and uh, well, it is one thing, but it's maybe not as uh, hype worthy. As we've been led to believe And again, mileage may vary And probably does So I am judging this unfairly But uh, even so, I am coming away from it Mostly positive here Uh, I think a lot of these are value-added moves I might not like the way they're being presented But I think coming away from it A lot of these things are, are mostly good And they open up the possibility for Many, many directions to be explored Uh, I think so far The only book I have a real problem with Is Excalibur Because Excalibur is, in my humble opinion Just not a very good book It really just isn't And this is just more of a Not good book to me But thank you so so much for writing in Damien, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing All your thoughts on the Hellfire Gala Here, I think it's a Going to present us with a lot of very fun dialogue So thanks again for writing in Uh, Next, a new letter writer here This is from Meal And uh, thank you for telling me how to pronounce your name Because I would have uh, I would have destroyed it Um, Now this is regarding the first week Of the Hellfire Gala And she says Hi, I've been listening to this podcast for a while And I finally gathered the courage to send this in So here I go I'm so happy that you decided to write in Uh, I'm very much the same as you I'll listen to a show and I'll think about writing in And then I think to myself, I'm like, well, what do I have to say? (laughs) And I'm always afraid I'm going to say something wrong So I just don't So uh, I really, really appreciate you doing it Um, First, Marauders 21 I don't have many thoughts on this issue that hasn't been already said It was okay Although being compared to Sarah Rogers is probably the highest compliment from Steve Rogers you can get And that is a reference to Emma Frost, uh you know, going into Cap's mind there and finding out that he, uh, he rem- that she reminds him of, of his mother. Now, Emma took that as a great insult, <laughs> though, I mean, uh, your point is well taken. It probably was a high compliment from, uh, from old Steve. Uh, she continues, uh, X-Force 21. I actually really like this book in general, but that's because I love Kid Omega, so I'm willing to let some things slide. However, this issue is great. As someone who doesn't care much for Sage, Emma confronting her was great. The Deadpool plot was fun, and I really can't wait for Beast to go to the pit. (laughs) I honestly don't want Beast to be redeemed. I want him to be a bad guy. I think it's a good idea for them to be evil mutants, and all their villains to just be racist guys. I really like this book, though, if I could be self-indulgent, I would like Quentin to either dance with Phoebe or reunite with his Jean Grey school classmates. But I can deal with it. Though I would like for him to ask where Evan Sabinor is because they were friends. And that's uh, that's very true. Um, I didn't even think about that as it pertained to Quentin here. Um, you know, we talked about Wild Child coming, uh, coming across Aurora in, Her- in Hellions here and thinking like, wow, that's a really cool callback here. Didn't even think about Quentin, you know, bouncing here where maybe he could be hanging out with some old friends, hanging out with people that he hasn't seen in quite a while. 
And uh, we don't get that. And I'm trying to think. I know we've heard about uh, about Kid Apocalypse, Evan, um, once or twice since the Krakoan era started here. And I know they said that he's just in the queue. Because, I mean, I guess he is, you know, sort of a dupe of Apocalypse. We don't have an Apocalypse now, so maybe... Maybe we'll find out that he'll be uh, on his way back sometime soon. I mean, stranger things have happened. But yeah, definitely would have been cool to see uh, to see Quentin with maybe Oyo or even, I mean, going over to our Generation X lapsed show, um, Hindsight and, uh, and old Ben Deeds. We haven't seen them. <laughs> I don't think we've seen them at all since uh, Hoxpox started. I mean, they could be, they could have been background. They could have been X-Men wallpaper for an issue or two, but um, they certainly haven't done anything, have they? Now, Emil continues. Hellions number 13. Surprising nobody, this was the greatest book of the week, and probably the gala. It was great. There isn't much to say about this book, but as someone whose favorite mutant is Alex, I love this so much. One thing I hope this book does is finish up the immense plot and go ahead and focus on the members' mental health and focus on that. Also, we need some justice for Madeline. And I agree with all of that. I do agree with all that here. I, I like that this book had a premise that was... Uh, what was it here? Um, therapeutic carnage, right? It was basically these people have problems, and they're going to work it out through just uh, uh, you know physicality and uh, madness. And their first mission was going to uh, going to burn down the clone farm, right? The house, uh, the house for foundlings, was it in, in Nebraska? And we were getting some insight, and I feel like Wells is doing a fantastic job in. Letting a lot of that stuff kind of bubble in the background here, right? We have a lot of subplots here, which is one of the reasons... I mean, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I don't want this book to be canceled, but uh, the subplots is uh, is definitely one of the bigger ones here. We've got Nanny with the, uh, with the robo-baby. We've got Orphan Maker dealing with his feelings of uh, separation anxiety. We've got Wild Child with his... You know, his return from Amenthi Alpha urges. Uh, we got Quanon finally getting some characterization... Grey Crow potentially having a romance with Quanon and also just dealing with his own guilt over the uh, the legacy Marauders. We've got Alex on this team, and we don't know why. He doesn't even know why. I mean, there is just there are a lot of things here that I would love to see addressed. And we, I mean, we also have Empath, who I mean, he's Empath. <laughs> he's he's there. But uh, I feel like uh, we got a little bit of that in the. Uh, in the Mastermind and Arcade storyline, where we saw into their minds here, and we saw just how broken some of these characters are, and we saw their their desires, we saw their fears, and if we can if we can focus a little bit more, you know, if we can be a little bit more laser-focused on that, I think there's a lot of interesting stories to be told there, and I've got all the confidence in the world in Zeb Wells being able to do so. It's just uh, the realities of a comics publication, I suppose, that... Uh, that might, you know, kneecap it before it even before it even comes to pass here. Uh, now, Meal wraps up with, Until Madeline is back, be my next lapsed. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing in, and I hope I hope you continue to share your thoughts with us. I had a very good time reading your message and uh, and sharing it with, uh, with the folks. So thank you so, so much. Now, we're going to wrap up with a letter from Andrew, and I mean, I got to... Got to get a running start for this one here. This is a biggie. Um, He's talking about Excalibur number 21. Okay, and he says, I don't enjoy this series at all, and I didn't enjoy anything about this issue. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And I... 
I agree. I mean, I hate to say it, especially when... I mean, we've talked about this a lot, right? Excalibur has a good cast, you know? It has a sort of decent premise. But it just won't get out of its own way. I don't know what it is here. We talked a lot about letting go of the opus uh, at various points during the uh, during the process of X-Lapsed, right? I always compare it to Young Animal. You know, when the Cancellation Act swung down there, you have two options, right? If you have a story that's going to take 30 issues to tell and then your publisher says you've got six, you have to make some decisions. You know, you either excise some things or you cram everything in. Neither is ideal, but if you cram everything in, you lose the opportunity to introduce it somewhere down the line. I feel like with uh, with uh, Teeny Howard's Excalibur, we're cramming as much in as possible here. We're not letting go of things that maybe we should let go by the wayside here. We, we're, we're 21 issues in. We're still dealing with the damn coven. We're still dealing with Otherworld. Solicits from three months down the line say we're still dealing with them. We need to let it go. We need to move on. Because this is a story, at least to me, that didn't have six issues worth of a story in it, much less 25. And, uh, boy, it's uh, it's not going anywhere, is it? I mean, worse yet, we know that there are fun stories to be told here. We had that two-issue, uh, you know, getaway to, uh, what's his face? Bloodstone? Was it Bloodstone? Whoever that kid is. Uh, they did the fox hunt, the, the warwolf hunt. That was just two issues. No other world, not even much Krakoa, no covens, no druids, no witches, no apocalypse in his grimoires. It was just an outing with a team that we got to actually kind of spend some time with and get to know, and it was good. You know, it was a good read, which just makes it worse that all the other issues can't live up to that. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was different, and it was fun, and it had a point (laughs) where... This coven has just been going on for what two years now. <laughs> two years we've been dealing with the coven. Otherworld for two years, and it's not it's not going anywhere. So yeah, I, uh, I'm taking the scenic route. I think I've said I'm taking the scenic route about a half dozen times today, but uh, it's kind of what I do. I agree, Andrew. <laughs> I don't enjoy this series much, and I didn't like anything about this issue. I, I would like for anybody who did and does enjoy Excalibur to uh, to maybe write in. I would invite you to do so. Just let me know what it is you like about it. I mean, we're all friends here. We're you know I think we're all big enough and mature enough to uh, receive opinions that don't necessarily line up with our own. So if anybody out there would like to discuss Excalibur and maybe has uh, some nice things to say about it, uh, hit me, please. I, I would love to hear from you. And uh, you know, actually, I'd like to extend that invite to anybody listening who wants to talk about. Anything, I guess. Um, you can find me very, very easily. I'm on Twitter at, at Ace Comics. I'm on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapse voicemail hotline gimmick at 623-396-JERK. Now, for all blog posts and show note needs, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could also join us on the Facebook group. Our little group is 90sXmen. We would love to see you there, and... Uh, Love to see all your uh, all your fun X stuff. You want to share pictures of your collection, what you picked up this week, share your thoughts on just about anything. We'd love to hear it, and we'd love to chat with you. So 90s X-Men on Facebook. 
Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if while you're there you enjoy what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two and ask them to do the same if uh, if they like X-Men or if they like uh, marble-mouthed uh, nudniks from Brooklyn talking about comics. <laughs> you can just uh, let them know that I'm here for them. Um, but I think that's all we got for today. I would like to thank you all so, so much for allowing me to uh, steal this hour of your day. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>